Can people hear me? Great. Okay. Last time I complained about feeling like I was on a leash, and so they gave me a roaming mic this time, and then I remembered there's no room on the stage to walk around anyway in pandemic because we have to spread out six feet when we sing, so I'll, I'll be still stuck in here. Um, I am really thankful to be here, though, um, already moved deeply by the vulnerability of this church. I mean, just having Eric a couple weeks ago say he wanted to do that song, not even realizing neither him nor myself that, that today would be focusing on the name of God and, and just his enthusiasm and his encouraging texts and prayers and, and then Melanie, um, uh, both Melanies, uh, participating in the service today and, and the, the praise team that comes tirelessly in the pandemic. It is just so meaningful to come together in this time when we're so far apart and be present and to see one another and to know that God is doing things with you, each of you, in special ways and to draw near to that and to remember God is doing special things in my life too. Um, so today's uh, title for the sermon, as, as we look at, at this passage from Exodus, technically these two passages, but I think they're connected. It's sort of a, a, a foundation for the whole book of Exodus, which is nothing short of a, of a, 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 a practical and theological application of the book of Genesis, and together are nothing short of an entire proclamation about the character of God. So... We'll be talking for about 75 minutes. Um, <laughs> no, I'll keep it as short as possible and we'll go into it because one of the things that we'll see is that the knowledge of God is determinative. We are drawn into knowing God, but it is God's knowledge that grounds us, grounds the world, that promises blessing and life. I'm going to lean into that today. The... Um, there's a poem that captures it. There's a, there's a person, a, a musician I really like, singer-songwriter named Leonard Cohen, and I actually took a line from one of his songs uh, for, for, as a guiding uh, image for, for our reflection today, um, Out of Pharaoh's Dream. It comes from a song called Born in Chains. If you don't know anything about Leonard Cohen, he is a spiritual pilgrim all over the map, but he was raised in a conservative Jewish context. And um, he leans toward Buddhist uh, thinking, uh, but he is sometimes, as he describes it, despite himself, just fascinated, awed, wooed by Jesus. And some of the things he writes about Jesus and the way that he thinks about Jesus and the way that he wanders unknowingly before God. It's, it's some of the most beautiful, beautiful songs you'll hear if you're interested in entering into somebody's prayers. And here are the first couple verses in the chorus to Born in Chains. He says, I was born in chains, but I was taken out of Egypt. I was bound to a burden, but the burden it was raised. O oh Lord, I can no longer keep the secret. Blessed is the name the name be praised. I fled to the edge of the mighty sea of sorrow, pursued by the armies of a cruel and dark regime. 
but the waters parted and my soul crossed over out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's dream. Word of words, the measure of all measures. Blessed is the name, the name be blessed. Written on my heart in burning letters, that's all I know. I do not know the rest. I was idled with my soul when I heard that you could use me. I followed very closely, but my my life remained the same. But then you showed me where you had been wounded. In every atom, broken is the name. I was lost on the road. Your love was so confusing. And all the teachers told me that I had myself to blame. But in the grip of sensual illusion, the sweet unknowing unifies the name. Word of words. The measure of all measures, blessed is the name, the name be blessed. Written on my heart in burning letters, that's all I know. I cannot read the rest. He knows the name. The character of this God. and It's somehow in him, burned on his letters, on his heart, like, like Jeremiah's fire shut up in his bones and he can't, from coming out, he, he can't keep the secret. The name is blessed. Blessed be the name. But he wanders back and forth between liberation and bondage and sliding and slipping. And, and then he finds out that this name is deeply somehow connected and vulnerable to suffering. Broken in every Adam is the name. Jesus' name, Yahweh saves. He is going, using all of this language of, um, of this story of Exodus and seeing it for his own whole life and in this incredible mix of deep knowledge, knowledge that, that keeps him going, that lights him up, and at the same time somehow deeply aware of what he doesn't know. It's burnt on his heart. I do not know the rest, but blessed is the name. It is a fascinating place to start, and I want to start and finish here and see how it resonates with us each time. This issue that I think we all experience in our lives of vacillating between freedom and blessing and knowing who God is and then strange confusion <laughs> and disorientation and, and rediscovery of of what freedom looks like, and sometimes we flee from pharaohs, and sometimes we don't need a pharaoh because we are our own pharaoh and our own taskmaster. And uh, I love this idea of name and the way he plays with it. The book of names, uh, I mean, the book of Exodus in the Hebrew Bible is actually called the book of names. It begins with names. If you pay attention, you'll see it's very careful about what characters get names, what characters don't. And uh, we're going to pay attention to the names today. Uh, what's known, what's unknown, how knowing works. And we're going to focus on how the names draw attention to that knowing as it's talked about in relationship to God in the story of Exodus is not this sort of mastery, this cognitive, propositional, doctrinal, all-seeing. It is, it is rather deeply relational. It's active. There's a tension between Human beings cry, their discovery of their own need, their calling out, and God's responsiveness, and then God's own speaking 
God's own promises and human responsiveness. Knowing is to be bound up in relationship, and the question is whether or not that relationship shows truth and beauty and life and love and justice. And that is the discovery of Exodus. Can't talk about it all today, so let me keep moving, but that is the revelation. And so when we start, we start out here in Exodus 1 through 7. I'll just try to clip through those very quickly. It starts out saying, these are the names of the literally sons of Israel, sons and daughters of Israel, the children of Israel. Now, in the same sentence, these are people who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with their household. Notice that. What we're talking about here, these are the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. Watch the names. <laughs> if you remember, Jacob is, uh, is a part of that long story, those cycles in Genesis of the promise of God beginning with, uh, well, coming first the vocation to Adam and Eve in the garden and then uh, coming along and, and reaffirming that commitment to creation and blessing in life with Noah and, and moving out into constantly overcoming uh, the sort of loss of identity of human beings that bear God's image and calling them back into the vocation of blessing and multiplying and filling the earth with God's image, being stewards with God and in relationship with God. And Jacob is many generations away from Abraham and he has moved in his own journey from a radical dependence on his own cunning, uh, his own ability to be a trickster, and, and has come into a space where wrestling with God, he has come to be called Israel, the one who strives with God. A new name, a new vulnerability, a name change to mark the fact that he has been touched by God, drawn into God's story, a child of God. And so, as we step into this story, we know that we're dealing with people who are children of the promise. Their lives and their shapes, uh, the shape of their lives, the shape of their existence, their thinking, their remembering, their, their hoping, their moving through the land is connected to that story of Genesis. And the promises that God has made to them are somehow present in this story and in their very identity. And, and it goes quickly and names each of the, the households. Um, and these, as you'll know, are the 12 tribes. We're fortunate to be people who um, get to participate through the Conman's uh, liturgy of Passover uh, um, celebrations each, each year. And so I think in so many ways, we, we are shaped by this story in a really, in a really special way. Um, all Christians are certainly, but but I think in our community we have, I think I found myself resonating with so many of the images of moving through the Haggadah together. It was it's it's wonderful to have that experiential base. So if Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, Exodus, you can't read Exodus without becoming really aware 
that you are not listening alone. And the author is not speaking alone. You can feel, and it's good to take breaks sometimes in Exodus, you can feel the listening community leaning in here. For those who are of age and who know the story and are familiar with the story, they are thinking all kinds of amazing, poignant things here and being provoked by the story. They themselves, of course, are children of Israel. They themselves, depending on where they're coming to this story and hearing this story, have, are either before exile on the other side of exile, but undoubtedly have had an experience of learning these promises. The, the fact that God's mission to give life to the world and to bless the world and to be in relationship with human beings as stewards of a creation filled with goodness and life-giving relationship with God as image bearers has not been abandoned by God. God has taken it on to himself, going from <laughs> ordering Adam and Eve to fill the world and, and, and multiply to, to coming to Abraham and saying, ah, it's gone wrong, but I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. And continuing to, to, to deal with that sin that, that breaks down and separates and alienates and working in. So, and and, and the, all 12 tribes are there. So this is the whole of Israel. So it's the whole of God's mission to the whole world. And so it, 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 Israel is a community, leans in and listens to this and knows, okay, so this is a whole generation of the names, but we know that, that, that there are faithful people. We know that the story doesn't come to a stall, to a halt in Egypt. So how is it going to move forward? And they hear the language of the children of Israel being fruitful and increasing greatly, and they know, oh, the promise is active. This generation has died, but God's promise is still going. The invisible string is still connected to the promise and to God. But what will happen? Where are we in this story? And we too, we are uh, rocks that have been struck by Moses' staff and from which water has come through Jesus. He told people he could raise uh, uh, sons of Abraham out of stones. Uh, God could do that, and God has proved it by turning each of us into children of Abraham, stones that we are. And so we lean in, and we know that we're here in this story too. What's going to happen? Joseph has died. What other names are going to emerge how will the plan go forward? But if time moves for Israel, right, time also moves forward for the rest of the world too. And it says that there's this Pharaoh there, and this new king arises, and this Pharaoh did not know Joseph. So now we have this interplay between names and knowing. And it pushes something new into the text. Not knowing Joseph is huge. If you remember the story of Genesis, toward the end of Genesis, the promise has been reconferred to Jacob. And Jacob, as he's approaching the end of his life, he confirms that that promise is going to be carried on to the next generation, particularly through Joseph. And in so many ways, signs of God's active work through Israel and his mission for creation is present. Uh, Jacob, as he approaches toward the end of his life, actually even blesses the living Pharaoh at that time. 
And that blessing toward the end is, of course, a literal expression of the uh, foretaste of the, the promise that all nations would be blessed through the family of, of Jacob and how people related to these descendants of Abraham as they become children of God. But it's also connected to, to blessing in the full sense of, of a, a time of rescue and an actual time of the flowing in of great life to Egypt. If you remember the story of Joseph, he had been sold into slavery rather maliciously. And in that, in that position out there, he, he had grown up into a person within Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's household. And through wisdom and through the protection of God, sometimes made explicit, but most of the time God working behind the scenes, Joseph has become uh, someone who has taken Egypt through famine, helped them in their deep time of need. The relationship that these pharaohs had with Joseph, with the people of Egypt had with Joseph, provided an opportunity for blessing. Uh, in, in a great time of famine toward the end of his life, um, it was Joseph's, what Joseph had amassed in, um, in the stockpiles of grain that enabled him actually to have this situation of accumulating land and accumulating labor and accumulating these livestock for this whole system of the Pharaoh in Egypt. And it's a precarious thing because on the one hand, these are real basic needs. And, there was, and, and what happens is flourishing. Uh, Joseph is able there to bring in his brothers and the whole of Israel, as we see here, these 12 tribes, into the land and settle them in the land of Ramses. Uh, and so there's a sense in which there, there are needs being met mutually through a sense of respect and a building relationship between Joseph and between Egypt. And in fact, when Jacob dies, Egyptians weep. There is a real relationship here. But this new Pharaoh who arises doesn't know Joseph. And if he doesn't know Joseph, he doesn't know directly or indirectly the blessings of God. Or, may, or might not conceive of life as a gift or the current flourishing of Egypt as something that comes from God. And it introduces the question to us as we look into this issue of knowing and remembering the names. What happens? Pharaoh becomes a sign and a symbol of what happens when we don't know, we don't relate actively to God the creator who gives life. And we don't relate to life as blessing and, and we get to see what will happen. But what will happen to Israel too when they're in an environment where they are not known? And Joseph had said to his brothers and sisters uh, uh, before he died, actually, um, he had said, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that the, he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. And Joseph died. So we have this issue. Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph. We get to watch what happens when there's this breakdown, this absence of knowledge, this absence of memory. And we also are faced with the question, does Israel really know 
Joseph, the listening community? Do they, do they know Joseph? They've heard the stories. Do they know him? Do they know his God? Do they see themselves here in this? And memory loss proves to be perilous as the story goes on. It takes a little bit of imagination, but not much. So I won't even linger there long. But you can imagine what it's like for this new pharaoh in this new situation. It's not clear exactly how he arose, but in the world of politics, one probably arises from the same way that Jacob amassed his wealth, right? Probably from a certain amount of cunning, a certain amount of shrewdness. And, uh, and so he's got some, some competence. And here he is in this land. It is filled with foreigners, sojourners, people who are there and they are working the land and they have been beneficial to the land in incredible ways. But he doesn't necessarily remember that. He sees himself standing before flourishing cities that he is responsible for. Could have been a she. We don't know which pharaoh this was, but... uh, um, uh, and there were like a couple female pharaohs, at least one uh, I know of. I know Sandra. You're the you're the expert in Egypt, so yeah. So who knows? Yeah, that's right. That's Shepsimprint. So, so anyway, um, and and so this issue arises with the pharaoh as he looks out at the world. What does he see? Does he see life, blessing, the current situation of the land over which he's in charge? as something that is connected to this blessing of God, something that is there because of interaction with the good gifts of God and God's creation? How does he see it? How does he look at it? Or does he look at it as something that is a source of anxiety, fear, something that has come from the competence of previous pharaohs, and now he's got to secure himself and his people with his own control and his own competence? And we see as it moves through to verse 9 very quickly. He comes and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. This is a fascinating thing because he is the first one in the text to call them the people of Israel. He doesn't refer to them as the children of Israel. He refers to them as the um, of Israel, the people of Israel. So he's the first one in the text to make a distinction. Not a distinction from a sense of vocation, identity of those who are bringing the blessings of God into the world, but he makes a distinction based on anxiety, fear. And whereas the previous Pharaoh had had told Joseph to take his strongest among him and make them in charge of his livestock, this person looks at their numerousness, their strength, and he's threatened by it. And he, and, he, and he sees the diversity in his presence as something to be afraid of, something to be threatened. You'll see in, in verse 10 as he goes and says, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. It's the language of wisdom. Let's be wise. He's, he's acting like a prophet to his own people, using the language of prophets even. Behold, uh, the people of Israel. He's showing them how to see this situation. But we, as we look in, have reason to question whether he knows what he's looking at at all. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. It's fascinating. I, I, I think in some ways, and I can't read this story without thinking about categories that, that some psychologists have for anxiety. There's a sense in which he moves very quickly from basic anxiety to neurotic anxiety. He doesn't name enemies. These are hypothetical enemies. 
he's, he's just simply looking at the diversity in his land, people who speak a different language, maybe talk about this promise that Joseph had made and going up out of the land. Maybe that makes him nervous. He doesn't want to lose labor. But at the same time, he's not really comfortable with them being there either because they're very numerous and they're very competent. Here he has a city thriving, and he's the one who begins to say, these people are not us. These people are a threat. The basic anxiety is covered. They have food. There's no famine here. So they have the basic things they need. We all have anxiety about those vulnerable things that we need, right? But, but he moves into a deeper space where he is not locating the power of the flourishing of the city and the land around him in good things, the good things that the Hebrews do, the good things that him and his people do, the, the fact that maybe they're sharing a story together. He can't put the power in those things. He puts the power in what he doesn't know. And it's almost like the image I get is that here they are in this lush garden, this beautiful flourishing village, and it's got this channel running into it, water, just rivers coming into it of blessing from God that represents sort of all of the goodness of creation, the fact that we have a world where food can come forth from the land, where we can, with industry, help one another, love one another, care for one another. And he's got that coming, and all he can do is be afraid of what he doesn't know, the knowing out there, the hypothetical enemies, the possible loss of control, and he doesn't remember, doesn't know Joseph, so he's cut off somehow from those tributaries and seeing life as a blessing and a gift and of relating in some way directly or indirectly to God. And so it's like he suddenly wants to just build a wall even if he cuts off those rivers, that blessing coming from God and the experience of life like that and moves into this neurotic place of anxiety. So what does he do? He, he does the thing that really scared people who need to control do. He replicates himself. He wants to make everybody like him. So he sets all these taskmasters, little pharaohs, all out there all over the place. Puts them all over the place to, to, to busy these people, these unknowns, these questions, these, these possible possible threats in their midst and he afflicts them with heavy burdens and he sends them to building store cities for pharaoh pithom and ramsey he sends them to consolidate and build even bigger <clears throat> the cities and the areas that their presence has made so good and so big and so strong already but it doesn't work. With life not seen in any way as blessing, and with God working behind the scenes, which we know as people looking in on the story, it doesn't work. And you know what? That's true too, not even just in a biblical story. That's true in life. We know that. We've seen it. People still fall in love. People still find humor. People still laugh. People still joke. People still dream dreams. People still remember promises. And so the Hebrews all engage in that. Their world doesn't shrink and they get bigger. And the only thing he multiplies is dread. 
fear. The fear increases. It swells up. Now everybody's afraid. He's afraid. His people are afraid. And they're all afraid. And he's driving this wedge in between him and the very source of blessing in his midst. And it will go so crazy. We'll see. There's a truth in this too. To the point of self-negation. He he's just can't see. If he can't remember... And if he doesn't know God directly or indirectly, and if he doesn't know life as blessing and gift, then all he can see is not life emerging in the world through God. All he can see is the threat of curse. All he can see is the threat of death. And whether he realizes it or not, he worships death. And his wisdom is all wrong. He's wrong about what he sees, but he calls his people into that as wisdom and cunning behavior. From, moves from the basic anxieties to the neurotic anxiety, shrinks the imagination of the people, and, and it, it doesn't work. And so what do they do? Stop, repent, relent, get to know some new Hebrews, get to know some human beings like they knew Joseph? No. Doubles down. If you look at Exodus 1, 13 through 14, it's this incredible chiasm. So they ruthlessly or violently made it. When you see work or serve it, it, it is, or slavery, it, 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 it's all this same uh, word, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's to serve, and it does imply in slavery as it's described and used here, um, but it is, it is all the same word throughout this, so you can see how, how they're driving home the emphasis. They ruthlessly, violently, made the people of Israel serve as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. He's going to shrink their world down so small with idleness, they won't have any chance of thinking of leaving or of being anything else. It's total objectification. We had this. We looked at Martin Luther King's words last week. He talked about segregation and the legacy of slavery. And he used the language of Martin Buber, talking about how it, it, it keeps communities constantly in the place of moving, not in the I-thou relationship, where there's this shared knowing. I know myself better by knowing you, and we know each other uniquely as knowing and knowable people. And by fully both being affirmed, we are, this new kind of relating and knowing emerges, and that is this beautiful aspect of, of human capacity, and instead, they negate the I-thou relationship, and it's an I-it relationship. You are something to be managed, controlled, used, right? And this is what Pharaoh has done. He's rendered the image bearers of God carrying blessing for the whole world so that all others can be restored to vocation as image bearers and he is turning them into it, controlling them. And it's the language of anti-creation. All the language that Pharaoh uses throughout is, is carefully selected. He's using the language of uh, the people who tried to build the Tower of Babel. He's taken the people of Israel and their service to God and God's mission to rescue the world, and he's made them serve him without any room to serve God, and he's making them go back to the Tower of Babel where instead of being able to appreciate beauty and dream, he's got them making bricks and building places for dead pharaohs. 
death is God. Fear is God. Humanity is lost. And this oppression is like, Ronnie made some connections to it though, oppression in the world. Exodus is not only everywhere throughout Scripture. I mean, learning Exodus is a fundamental revelation of God's character. It never goes away. It's retold and retold and retold in every book, in every act of faith, in so many of the songs we sing, in Jesus' ministry, in Jesus' own life, in the hope of the church in Revelation. Exodus is everywhere. This is a fundamental revelation of who God is and who the world is. Um, And And we know that we see it everywhere, too. It's not even hard to find it. I can look, though, at just a couple things, for example, move from the social and political and then the personal, just keeping it in the American context, right? This sense where basic anxiety turns into neurotic anxiety and fear of death leads to sin, sin that violates the sanctity of human life and God's desire to bless and give life. I, I put this on today. I wanted to wear the one that my great-grandfather wore growing up, but it, it actually broke the band on it. It's so old. But this is something that my, grandfa- my great-grandfather always used to wear, and I didn't learn about it until I was older. He passed when I was nine. And it's, a, it's an image from the Eastern Orthodox tradition that is the Christus Victor image. And it, and it's, it, it is of Jesus on the cross, but uh, underneath him is, is the, the skull, the death that comes out from, from the broken relationship with, with God and Jesus is conquering that death. And in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, when they reflect on death, it has a centrality in their images and in their praying and in their thinking um, in, in ways that's one of many ways that the Bible talks about it. But I, I find it to be very compelling and very powerful where this fear of death becomes worship of death, becomes hard service to death, because in order to avoid it, to keep it away from us, to deny it, to not face it, we begin to harm those around us, and it becomes the power of Satan. It becomes the power of sin, and uh, has us work against God and God's mission. But so in social political way, though, we can see it as metonymy for, for this Exodus story recapitulated in this reality of sin and fear uh, in, in the history of slavery right here in our country. I couldn't read this without thinking about the, all the images and songs and how important this, this text and this understanding of God's fundamental character was in, in uh, slavery in the United States among enslaved Africans um, who ultimately clung to this image to survive often uh, white slaveholding Christianity, which is, again, the redeemed can, can go wrong too. But uh, specifically Thomas Jefferson's personal and private letters and his notes in the state of Virginia. Because you have in there this incredibly brilliant person who's trapped like Pharaoh. <laughs> he writes in there, he says, slavery's like having a wolf by the ear. It's dangerous to hold him and it's too dangerous to let him go. And he talked about how the legacy of brutality against slaves had been so terrible that they ought to be set free. We can't continue it without it being inhuman. And then he also said, but the problem is they outnumber us. We can't, because they'll certainly kill us. Wouldn't expect anything else. So, but, but he did the math. Couldn't afford to ship them off. Be too costly. We'd lose too much money because cheap labor is important. Trapped. 
and uh, even went so far and elsewhere, especially once uh, the events in, in Haiti happened and, and that can increase the anxiety, he said flat out, uh, a, a prophet of, if ever there was one, prognosticating about the future said, but the problem is if we keep them as they are in a country that's divided over whether we should do abolitionists, be abolitionists or continue enslaving people, um, then it's eventually going to rip the country in half and we will have two nations. Boy. <laughs> When you break down that I-thou relationship and turn to that I-it relationship and you choose to use human relationship as a place of curse and a place of self-preservation, you are automatically entering into this cycle of curse and death and anti-creation away from God. You're into cycles of self-negation. And they persist right through to today. In FRJ, we spent a lot of time with James Baldwin. So much of James Baldwin's point is that people still love each other. We are already a single country, but when we maintain these segregated patterns and these different ideas, and when we perceive one another as threats, we continue to devalue one another. We make enemies out of each other, and eventually we're going to destroy the whole community. We can so easily, human beings, Christian or not, allow our imaginations to be so shrunken down that we too become separated from the mission, this mission to give life, to give life to human beings. And we find ourselves in communities where we see the diversity that's the blessing and gift of God's creation, the resilience and strength of people in our midst, people who have, have participated in understanding and seeking the character of God, and we just can't stop seeing it all as too threatening to engage in equity and in sharing. It's Exodus. Pharaoh. Happened just this week. I won't put his name in the book, but listening to a politician say, people say that we're blocking voting rights in our communities, but um, blacks are voting just as much as Americans. Their people. Her people. It's a shrunken imagination. It's a lost vocation. And then too with the personal. We do this in our personal lives too. We've been talking a lot in various ways with different people about disenchantment. Um, you know, when you stop seeing life as a gift, when existence itself is the great burden that humans have to think their way out of and create their way out of, uh, you wind up in a situation where you are constantly your own taskmaster. Whether you're engaging in thinking and trying to come up with systems that are separate from this relational knowing with God, or whether you're just trying to distract yourself Distract yourself from your own vulnerabilities with accumulation of resources or entertainment or drugs or whatever it is. We so easily become our own, our own taskmasters, our own little pharaohs. And um, we, just, we just know it all around us. In the pandemic, too. We're at real risk in circumstances, not just with personal agents who act as pharaohs, but we're at risk in circumstances of forgetting. Forgetting God's care, forgetting God's intervention in our life, forgetting God's salvation and our own experience of discovering this God and being found by this God and, and beginning to settle for not choosing life and beauty and blessing in our own homes and in our private spaces and in our communities because it's just hard. So we just settle for isolation. I'm not saying we shouldn't isolate when we need to to be safe. But, but the plague that we're in is not ultimately determinative for our future. 
And so we know here that oppression individually and oppression in the world is real. But, ah, it's not the end of the story. There are more names to emerge. So the story goes on. Pharaoh continues with his message and he enters into what we were just talking about, this attempt to self-negate. If you know the stories between our two verses up here, one and two, I'm going to go very quickly now. (laughs) You may know the name of, we don't get Pharaoh's name. Whose names do we know though? Shipra and Pua. Heard of those names? Pharaoh gets this bright idea in his shrewdness, his wisdom here, that he's going to get the Hebrew midwives when they're helping the, um, the Hebrew women give birth, He's going to have them kill the firstborn males in Israel. Now, I don't want to spend too time, much time thinking about how he could have possibly made this plan work, but on its fundamental level, I'll just at face value, if we don't get too creative, he's literally, what, what's he going to do? He wants to keep them from escaping so bad that he's going to commit genocide? So he doesn't want them to leave the land, but he's ultimately going to kill them until there's nobody there to work, until they're too weak. It is the total breakdown, the fear driving one into self-annihilation as we just talked about it. Ah, but Shipra and Pua, they remember. They remember Joseph's promise. Joseph who said, God will visit you and God will lead you up out of the land. They remember that, maybe. It doesn't say explicitly, but it does say that they fear God. They respect life and they fear God and they lean into that. And so they thwart Pharaoh's plan and they lean into blessing and they discover blessing. But they don't yet in any real way confront a wider establishment. They don't yet in any real way call out to God specifically but they are remembering that God and they are choosing life. And so they are remaining connected to this mission and this plan, and they carry it forward. And Moses too, despite the increase of hardships, relationships are continuing. Life is continuing. Human resilience is continuing. And so Moses is born. And Moses, just like the ark in the flood, is put in this little basket and sent along the Nile River, something that Pharaoh should have complete control of, Pharaoh and his gods. But no, comes through and, and, and Moses is rescued by Pharaoh's daughter of all people. So you have Moses who grows up and, and I know I'm skipping over some amazing characters forgive me but for time but Moses grows up but Moses can't not remember either. Moses seems to remember despite himself. I mean here he is. He's essentially raised in the court. He's got the privilege. He's got the status. But he can't not see himself in the Hebrew people. He can't not see them and know it's him. Maybe we should all be Moses in our own social and political context in our own history. But he, it's in a literal way with him. He is literally a Hebrew. And he doesn't choose that. Instead, he chooses and he's compelled into this solidarity. But it isn't his act of violence. See, he falls into disorientation because his act when he sees them and he reacts defensively and he murders one of the taskmasters, he finds his own self alienated, alienated completely from the community, alienated completely from his knowing. It is done in a certain way and unknowing too. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know this story. He doesn't know this God. 
he knows something is wrong, but that's an idea, not this personal relationship with this mission of blessing in life. And so he negates, he murders, he kills life. And that act is not what moves the story forward, but it does lead him out into the wilderness, and Moses does get a name, and so we wait and we look for something. But it's something else that happens on the other side of that story as things intensify that moves the story forward. Pharaoh may treat people inhumanely, treat them like they're objects. Human beings are not God, they're humans. And they're not made to serve Pharaoh, they're not made to serve like machines. They're made in the image of God and they're made to be in relationship with God. Pharaoh pushes them to their limits, beyond their limits. And it doesn't necessarily say that they groan and cry out to God, but they groan. Pharaoh pushes them too hard and they cry out and you can't cage the voice. You can't stop the voice out of maybe their shrunken imaginations. Maybe some of them have forgotten. Maybe some of them are thinking, where is God? God is not here. (laughs) But they cry out for help. Their cry is a reflection of imagining that there might be a different way of living, a different way of relating. And it says that the cry goes up. And the language that's used for the cry going up is the same exact language that's used earlier in Joseph's promise saying that God will visit the people and God will carry them out of Egypt. It's the cry that goes up that is the first act of carrying the people out of Pharaoh's dream. It's the human voice first. And then, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, so he couldn't keep himself safe. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, not Abram, Abraham, new name, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Pharaoh's lack of knowledge of the value of the human beings in his midst is not enough to stop God and to stop God's promise and to stop God's mission. The own people, if they forgot the promises in their oppression, is not enough to stop God's responsiveness to the cry. No lack of imagination is enough if the cry goes up This is a God who responds, who is vulnerable to it, and it sets into motion the knowing of God, even his name. Now Moses will see the burning bush and will be told this God's name. And it sets into motion this huge act of this relational knowing we've been talking about as their cry joins God's responsiveness, and they'll now move into this long period of wandering with God and learning God to trust God to meet their basic anxieties, to, to have God who, who, who sustains them, who provides for them miraculously, who is present with them. The whole story moves to God living with them. The next time they cry out to God in Exodus 14.10, it will be by name. 
It won't just be a general cry for help out of Pharaoh's dream. It will be a cry to the author of life, to Yahweh. There is this knowing that comes in, but the foundation of it, the foundational point of it, the most important thing is not their perfect knowledge of God. The knowing is relational. It is important. They do learn who God is, but it's God's knowing, God's remembering, God's seeing, and God's hearing. The primary cry of people who are oppressed and who are alienated from one another is, is <laughs> this is a question of where is God? And this cry, this cry in Exodus, is something that affirms on every level where God is. God is responsive. God is there. God is with these who are oppressed, but God is with all those who are oppressed. We see this too in Jesus. This goes all the way through Jesus. It is not just God's ability to know and see and remember and care for and guide people through circumstances or oppression that is important here, but it's ultimately Jesus. As, as these people come to join into a relationship, you know, and so, so many times in the past, I've read through the end of Exodus really fast. We get to the part about the tabernacle making all the instructions, page after page after page of instructions. And then, and then there's the part where they give the instructions again, and every time it says, and then they made it. And then you get the instructions again as, as they says that they made. What they, oh, my goodness, right? This last couple times I've read it through. It's taking my breath away. Exodus is a book about names. It's also a book about signs. And here they come out of this process of building this homage to dead kings. And they come into the space where again there's this dance between God's voice and human responsiveness. He's giving them instructions and they're using their skill and their craft to respond to it. And it's this dance. And what they're left with is this beautiful sign in their presence of, of the beautiful art that emerges when God's instructions and human responsiveness gives birth to something. And the sign cannot exist independently of either party. And ultimately the story moves through God coming to dwell with them. Not to build houses for dead kings, but for God to dwell with his people. It's the story of witness that moves all the way up until Jesus comes. And Jesus fully lives into this, embodying fully and perfectly and completely this calling to serve this mission that God has to give life, to serve God's will, to hear and obey God's voice, to see the world with God, to trust that God knows you. And he carries that service all the way through the cross. And his cry, human as it is and vulnerable as it is, yet also full son of God, declares to the whole world and for all of creation that not even the darkness of death can put us into a space where God can't see us hear us, remember us, and know us. Nothing can stop God's knowledge of us. And that in so many ways in Jesus is the whole movement that's been the whole problem all along. The things that went wrong in the garden was that human beings wanted to be like God and know good and evil. And then it's this whole story for the rest of the time to say, look what happens when you do that. You become like Pharaoh. And there's this whole story again and again and again of, uh, till, till there's Ezekiel. And Ezekiel has to give the right answer. Can these bones live? Does Ezekiel say, yes, I know because I trust you. 
You know, Lord. Until Peter gets asked three times, do you love me? Peter gives the right answer by saying not. Yes, I love you. I, I, what he said earlier, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, with all these ideas of what a Messiah should be and what the Son of God should be and, and his knowledge of that and his courage to say it. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. God's knowledge of us is what matters. And we know in this story, and I have to wrap up here, but that that this is the very heart and character of God. There are characters in the story who they may not know God, but even God's knowledge of them and God's mission is accessible to them. Pharaoh's daughter, when she reaches out and saves Moses, she's described with the language of God. She responds to the crying of the baby. She pulls him up out of the water. She steps into this process of blessing. And so many in the stories do embody the fact that God is actively blessing people inside and outside the community. And the community has to have this exodus pattern, this character of God, be something that they remember and is, is as threatening as it is life-giving. In some, if I can say it that way, that's a little bit harsh to say, but I, I, I mean that. It's, it, this, this knowing in this relationship means that, 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 that falling back into this instrumentalization of other human beings is, is dangerous. It's deadly. It's the opposite of God's work and creation. And so they have to remember that it was their limits and their groan that, that caused this God to come. And like Pharaoh had built those walls that kept out those waters of, of blessing, you know, those waters built up and built up and built up until they crushed that wall. And Pharaoh felt the full weight of God's blessing and experienced it as judgment. He tells Israel, that if they forget... And they're harsh to people. They enslave people. That God will come and confront them like he did Pharaoh because God is there. God is where people cry out. And they have to remember their own limits. Keep the Sabbath, even with the land. Not to overuse the land and remember its limits and not mistreat it and not be harsh to it, but to trust God, to choose blessing and to choose life. And I think... This, even as it moves out of the social and political into the personal level, it's true too. We don't always know everything. We don't know everything where the story is going. I'm in a season of incredible disorientation. But in my own life and in my own house, I'm finding that even with not knowing, if I choose blessing, even if that looks like dressing myself, (laughs) even though I'm not going to see anybody that day, but I choose to do it because I'm choosing life, in this time of pandemic, disorienting season, that that somehow is participating and somehow it winds up blessing my family because I'm more up for being with them, more caring to them. And to remember this story of, of having this God burst into my life keeps me looking for God. You know, Moses, Moses could have kept walking. It's really important that it points out that he turned aside to see the bush. He saw a burning bush and he, and he turned aside. He broke where he was going to look for it. So I think there's a season where as we lean into God knowing us, that we, we double down on this, knowing that God sees us, hears us, remembers us, knows us. We're not alone. He's with us. And as we get confused and as we get disoriented and as we look for what to do, we just choose blessing, just choose life and call out and cry out to God.
That's the task of the church. The task of the church can be described in all sorts of ways, but one of this author's favorite is that we're called to make the echoes of the Exodus louder. We've been given the responsibility and the privilege of standing in the middle of this epic story and witnessing it. People all around us going about their daily business do not recognize the pharaohs and the plagues, the manna from heaven, and the chariots in the deep. Part of the task of the church is to amplify the music of redemption so that they and we might hear it for what it is. Amen.